You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Edward Harrison here for Real Vision. I'm talking to Joel Greenblatt, who is one of the most prolific value investment professionals around. He is also the founder and the managing partner for Gotham Asset Management. Joel, welcome to Real Vision. Oh, thank you, Ed. You know, we're going to be talking today, uh, Joel, about uh, um, your book and public policy. Uh, as opposed to more about uh, value investing or investment in general. And, you know, the reason is because you have this book here. Let me put it up here called Common Sense that you wrote very recently. So I really want to drill down on that. And maybe towards the end, we'll get into a little bit of the value investing part of things. But I think the most important question I have for you to start out with is because you are a prolific investor, uh, how is it that your investment skills uh, sort of uh, make you think about public policy? Why did you write the book, first and foremost, and how does that inform your your thinking? Sure. Well, usually a book like this would probably be written by either a politician or an economist or a journalist. And, you know, long-term investors bring a different perspective to certain things and particularly how to solve some of the problem, biggest problems that we have. And, uh, you know, while no one perspective is going to get at everything. I think a long-term, the way a long-term investor thinks about the world is maybe a little different than the, the usual person who would write this. And I wanted to share some of those ideas. Yeah, I think that that's great. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I found very interesting, Joel, is the fact that uh, your book, uh, Common Sense, has the exact same name as uh, the treaties from uh, Thomas Paine uh, from years ago. And I know from having read the book, uh, there's a reason why, but maybe you can explain to our viewers why is it that you chose that name and why is Thomas Paine a big uh, part of that? Well, what struck me about uh, Thomas Paine Common Sense, which George Washington credited with, uh, you know, giving support, main, the main support for the revolution, uh, was that he didn't view problems really just, you know, uh, he, he wasn't attacking, oh, we, uh, you know, have bad taxation or, uh, you know, I want to defend property rights. It was more taking things from a different perspective, you know, really starting not from 40,000 uh, 40, feet up, but really, you know, as if he were coming off a boat from Mars, looking at the way the world was set up. And he starts off more or less saying, who picked this king guy anyway? What made, you know, who put him in charge hundreds of years ago? Why are we stuck with that decision? And it's just a different perspective than, just sort of, you know, getting involved in the nitty gritty of day to day issues and really taking a step back and not even a step back, you know, going from another planet and saying, hey, is this right to begin with? Right. So, I mean, just taking a part and saying, look, let's just start from ground zero. Let's start right fresh from the beginning and maybe even just overhaul the whole thing. Let's not uh, make any premises that uh, that we all share. Let's just go right from the beginning. I, I think that's a great approach. And, you know, Joel, I want to talk to you about five different things that you cover in, in your book here. I want to talk to you about schools, you know, technology and globalization. Uh, we can talk about immigration, uh, bank reform and, and then retirement and just take them one by one as we go through. Sure. That'd be so, great. yeah, uh, let's let's start with uh, schools. And, you know, we had Ava um, Moskowitz, who is on our, our program to talk about charter schools. I think that that interview is, uh, as we speak, which is on uh, Monday, is is on the Real Vision platform. Uh, you're, you're very much involved with Her School Success Academy. Talk to me then about uh, the issue of schools, what's wrong with uh, American schools, and how can that be fixed? Sure. So before going into exactly what's wrong, we can just sort of state what the facts are of how they're not working. If, if you're... Uh, low income, black, Hispanic, in one of our major cities, top favorite 50 urban centers, uh, your odds of graduating college are one out of 11. College graduates, as we know, earn 70% more than high school graduates. High school graduates earn 30% more than dropouts. So one out of 11 graduating 
college is a bad set of circumstances to begin with, which means the current system is not really working uh, for everyone. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about good charter schools. You know, uh, I was one of the co-founders of Success Academy that Eva runs. And, uh, you know, the results are pretty phenomenal where uh, the kids are learning. These are low-income kids from the toughest neighborhoods in New York City. And, and they're, uh, if you take them, there's 20,000 kids at success. If you take them as a group, they would be the top performing district in the, in the state. That, that means beating the wealthy, wealthiest districts from Scarsdale, Great Neck, you name it, uh, success would, would be number one. So taken from kids from, uh, you know, or minority kids, low-income kids, yet they're outperforming the wealthiest districts. And then I talk about some of the best district schools. I talk about one in particular, PS 172 in Brooklyn, run by a gentleman named Jack Spatola. He just retired. Uh, but in his school, 99% of the kids passed the uh, uh, math test, 94% passed the English test, less than 40% of similar kids in the district schools passed the, that test. But here's the key. The numbers I just gave you, the 99% who passed uh, for math and 94% for English, that was his kids with disabilities. So that's pretty exceptional. If you just look at his English language learners, 90% passed the English test. Uh, English language learners in the regular district schools, which he is one, uh, on average passed 9%, so 10 times better. And so he's able to achieve phenomenal results. Uh, he's you know, and I, and I admit, you know, somebody has to be the best principal in the state, probably Jack. Uh, but it shows with the right supports, the best charters, the best district schools show that with the right supports, all kids, even kids with disabilities or English language learners can perform at extraordinary levels. And so what I pose in the book is, all right, so we know it's not the kid's fault with the right supports. Uh, these kids can perform at super high levels. So the question is, what can we do with those facts? Right. So, so I, I talk about the in the book uh, when Tiger Woods was at the top of his game. I posed this question to my students at Columbia Business School. I've taught there 23 years. So I, I, I taught them. I, I, I posed this question. I said, how do you beat Tiger Woods? The answer was don't play him in golf. <laughs> and so. You know, how do you do an end run around the system? How do you not, you know, uh, K, K through university education is a trillion dollars a year. There's not much philanthropy, philanthropy can do. Charters are only 7% of the students, uh, and there's a lot of political pushback. So it doesn't look like, uh, even in the best states, New York, Massachusetts, California, that, that we're going to be able to open too many more. Uh, hopefully we will, given the great results, but there's a lot of pushback from the uh, status quo. Uh, there's a lot of uh, investment in there. So the question is, how can we do an end run around the system? Because how can we help those 10 out of 11 who aren't getting college degrees now? And I suggest there's something we can do today. Right. And I, su and I suggest there's something we can do. Uh, the top companies can do Microsoft, Google, uh, JP Morgan, uh, Amazon. Uh, I suggest something called alternative certification. And the best way to uh, talk about this, let's say uh, Microsoft wants to hire someone for the HR department or the accounting department. What I suggest is all they have to do is say, what tests, what courses, what certificates can you pass or do well on in lieu of a college degree that we will consider you for a high paying job in our HR department or accounting department or any other department. So in other words, set standards. I'm not suggesting that they administer tests or create tests. I'm saying what existing tests or new tests that come out, for instance, Imbolus together with McKinsey has game-based tests that they've developed that supposedly test your decision-making ability and critical thinking skills. And so they can choose which tests work best for them. Obviously, you'll need some numeracy. You might have some literacy issues uh, that you'd have to pass, you know, tests or certificates you'd have to get or courses. And all they have to do, these leading companies, is set a standard. What tests, what courses, what certificates will you pass or do well on that we will consider you for a high paying job in one of our departments? And you say specifically what those are. So in other words, you announce those publicly. And then what's happened is you now have a buyer 
for people to pass those tests or take those courses. And once you have a buyer, a whole ecosystem, I suggest, and I go through all the data of how disruption works. I talk about Clay Christensen. I talk about how it's worked across Africa for cell phone companies. There's a lot of precedent for if once you have a buyer, a whole ecosystem of supportive tutoring services, uh, online resources uh, to help people pass these courses, tests, and, and uh, certificates to, to get those skills. And what about those kids who have uh, not had a good background? You know, in other words, K-12 didn't them a good, give them a good background to pass these. I, I suggest that there would be a lot of prerequisite uh, helping resources that uh, that would help people get ready to pass these tests. So in other words, you could go all the way down to whatever level you need to go to so that you can build yourself up to passing these tests. And I suggested that the way these tutoring resource, resources would be measured would be uh, just the way Uber drivers are measured or Airbnb rentals are measured. We don't need government standards set. We don't need government funding. What we need is these major companies to be a buyer, to publicly state which test courses and certificates would be needed and the whole ecosystem develops. That's the basic idea I talk about alternative certification. Yeah, you know, I think that's an interesting uh, proposition. Uh, let me see if I can frame it, because uh, uh, in terms of how I'm thinking about it, from when I read it, is that in, in some senses you could say a college degree is not just about an education, it's about a certificate. It is a minimally viable level of, of confidence that this individual has what it takes. So you are doing a screening uh, uh, through this, this certification saying that I know this person went to school, therefore I'm gonna, and this is the, the, this, the best way that we can figure out that someone has the skill set to get into the door. So let's screen using that screen. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is, is that we can have a different screen, one that isn't as costly, uh, that's out, that works outside that system. So, so then the question becomes, how do you make that screen uh, worthwhile? How do you make it so that that screen actually has a market for it? And you're saying it's the biggest companies that will help you to do that. I think that's right. So uh, what you're describing is a signaling device. That's what college right. degrees are. It signals that you, you had the wherewithal and ability to uh, get through the system. That doesn't mean you learned that much. It's a signaling device that a lot of hoops were set up for you and you dove through them. And, and there's a lot of obstacles to that, to those hoops, because these kids, 10 out of 11 who aren't getting one, uh, they're clearly with the right supports could. So the question is, what other alternative can we work around the current system with all the hurdles in its way? Can we set up? And the only people who can really do that, who have the power to do that, to lead in that area would be the JP Morgans, the Amazons, the Googles, where if they set those standards, other companies can copy them. You know, if you want a job in the HR department, the accounting department. Now, Google set up six month certificates for certain technical areas. And so that's a great start. But they designed those certificates. It's very technical areas. So it's very clear you can do that. I'm something I'm suggesting something much broader that the companies don't have to write these tests. They don't have to administer them. All they have to do is say what tests, courses or certificates will we consider? And that's a lot easier task. And all these companies mine data to make their decisions. And this is something that would iterate over time. I talk about how uh, the Apple computer, which was $2,000, ended up disrupting a $200,000 mini computer from DEC uh, that all the uh, small businesses were using. And of course, at first, it wasn't that great. In other words, the little, it cost 1% of what a $200,000 computer did, and it didn't do everything that the mini computer could do. But then it iterated over time and it ended up uh, being able to do all those tasks. And that's what I suggest for these certificates. They'll get better and better. Companies will figure out which are the courses, certificates, and tests that will uh, give them the best employees. And, and once it starts going, I think it'll be a great alternative system. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. And, uh, um, you know, when you think chicken and egg wise, uh, it's obviously the you know, the, the chicken or, and the egg, it, it's on the, it's incumbent upon the people who are taking the signaling device to say that not only is this a signal, but, you know, it's a it's a good signal uh, for it to, to work. Uh, and, and that will cause the other side to come on board as a result. Um, you know, the I think that one of the reasons that we have this problem has a lot to do with the issues of technology and globalization. You were just talking about digital equipment 
uh, being superseded by Apple and, and things of that nature. A lot of people are saying that uh, technology and globalization, that's a big concern. And I, you talked a lot about that in the book. What, how does that square with, uh, how does it fit into uh, the school, uh, the, uh, the propositions that you have for changing schools? Sure. So what we know is that uh, over the last 20 years, you know, you used to be able to get a high paying manufacturing job. And a lot of those went overseas. A lot of them uh, were victims of technology, meaning uh, it was cheaper to do things with machines. And so it's not so easy to get a high paying manufacturing job as it was 20 years ago. And of course, we've been through disruption before in 1900. Forty percent of us worked on farms. Now it's less than two percent. So, of course, We've always had disruption. It's just a question of it's moved faster now between how fast globalization has taken place and how fast technology is moving. I think this disruption has happened faster. So, of course, the long term solution, as you're suggesting, would be education or job training. That would be the you know, so that you have more skills to move up the, the curve to get a higher paying job. But of course, this has happened so fast that a lot of people have been disrupted and uh, some of these people don't have a lot of time to get more educated. They're supporting their families. They're working hard. Uh, uh, they don't have time for a lot of uh, new job training. So what can we do for them? And we actually have a program called the Earned Income Tax Credit uh, that in 2018, which are the stats I used in the book, we spent $68 billion as a, uh, as a country on it, which was our third biggest social welfare program of all of them. We spent a lot of people don't know about this program, but basically it says that, listen, if you earn eight or ten dollars an hour, uh, minimum wage isn't real. Raising your minimum wage to 15 or 20 dollars, if, if you're only contributing eight dollars to the employer, forcing the employer to pay you 15 or 20 dollars uh, doesn't make sense from an economic standpoint. Uh, but what the earned income tax credit says is, listen, if you're willing to get a job, we will subsidize uh, what you get paid to get you to a higher pay. And we do that mostly for uh, uh, employees with families. Uh, and it can go from $3,500 to $6,500 right now. So I suggest it's a, a great program because we take 6 million kids out of childhood poverty already with the 68 billion we give. And I go through the math as a long-term investor uh, showing how we can go to a trillion dollars a year, meaning making sure it would cost us a trillion dollars a year to make sure that everyone earns, uh, as long as they're willing to take a job at any level, whatever they contribute, whatever the employer can pay them, we can get everyone with a supplement from the government up to 15 to $20 an hour. And it would cost us about a trillion dollars a year. And I suggest that, uh, there's a lot of, uh, I, I go through the math of how as a long-term investment, we can actually afford to do that and it would cost us less than nothing. And how is that possible? Well, uh, right now the 68 billion, there was a, a study at University of Chicago for our current earned income tax credit. Uh, we spent $68 billion a year. They say the actual cost of that nets out to about $9 billion. And the reason for that is there's more employment taxes paid, there's more sales taxes paid, there's more lower social welfare costs because you're now working, you know, and getting paid more. And so that 68 billion, the net cost to us is about 9 billion. And if you go through the math with a trillion, the net cost is only about 600 billion. I say only, that's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, but then I talk about the cost of, uh, there was a study at uh, Wash U about the cost of childhood poverty in this country. The cost of childhood poverty in this country works out to about a trillion dollars a year that we're spending already. And uh, that has to do with uh, the cost of uh, poor childhood health care, uh, poor education, uh, crime, incarceration, homelessness, and social service costs that we're already spending. So it's already costing us a trillion dollars. And of course, of course uh, increasing the earned income tax credit won't solve childhood poverty, but it will really take about half of that problem away. That's $500 billion a year. We're already spending the trillion. If we increase the earned income tax credit so that everyone earns 15 to $20, as long as they're willing to get a job, uh, we'll supplement it so that they make that 15 to 20. Uh, that'll save us about $500 billion a year in uh, childhood poverty costs. And then there's adult medical costs that save us another 200 billion. So you add it all up and we can invest long-term 
for free. And I bring up the examples of customer lifetime value to think about that. Right. Uh, if you have a software program that you're renting for $1,000 a year, let's say it manages your inventory, uh, and, and the guy who sells you the software spends $2,000 to get you as a client. Well, accounting says, well, you spent $2,000 this year and you got $1,000 in revenues, so you lost $1,000. But if that customer stays for eight years, and so uh, and the you collect $8,000 for that software and it only costs you $2,000, as a long-term investment, you're gonna spend that $2,000. The accountant, and in this case, I call it the Congressional Budget Office, says, well, you spent $2,000 and you only got $1,000 because we're only looking at what happens this year. But if you look at the long-term payoffs, uh, they're huge. And in this case, how could you get a better long-term payoff than giving the money directly to the people who need it the most to take these kids out of childhood poverty, to get to encourage people to work for a living wage because they've been disrupted out of a high paying job because of technology and globalization. And this is something we can afford. Of course, I know we're not gonna bring up uh, the 68 billion up to a trillion dollars. So I say, let's start off at 200 billion, let's triple it. And it's very easy to show the numbers that will make a lot of money by doing that, not cost us money, but make a lot of money doing it. So I go through the math in the book and I think it's very exciting and I just, suggest we change the name to earned income tax credit, which is a terrible name to uh, doing the right thing, which I think is is what we should do. We're a rich con country. And if we can do something for less than free, we got to go do it. Well, you know, uh, I, I told you when uh, we were talking about this before uh, we ca came on that I was going to try to come up with some pushback questions for you. I think the, the, the and so, so I have one or two here for you. You know, the first most obvious one is the political will, right? Because right now, you know, fiscal year 2019, we had a $3.1 trillion deficit. I've, and the um, many in the Senate are now saying, uh, not only uh, are we not going to do something for the next administration, but this administration now, which ends January the 20th, we're going to make sure that this pandemic relief, that we limit the size of it because uh, we already are running these, these deficits. How is it possible, even if you think of it uh, in terms of uh, amortization of these costs over a longer period of time, given the political climate that this has a chance of, of, of actually working? Well, number one, I took my demands down to 200 billion from a trillion just to get it started and see how well it works. So that's uh, number one. Number two, uh, the pandemic is a one-time issue, hopefully, or at least it does, hopefully it happens every 100 years or less. Uh, and that's a lot different than something that happens every year. So. Let's just say uh, we run a $10 trillion deficit for this. Right now, luckily, and we can go through the reasons, we can borrow that money for 1.3 or 1.4% over uh, 30 years. If you take into account inflation, it's less than free. Uh, so let's say it even costs us $10 trillion, one thing, and you know, as horrible as the uh, pandemic is, we have this problem now and we have to help people to get through it. And whether it takes six months or nine months, uh, to get through this from here. If we spend $10 trillion, it costs us 1.3 or 1.4%. That's 130 or $140 billion a year. That's less than 3% of our budget last year. And we can afford to do that. It's a one-time thing. It's not a long-term entitlement. It's helping people get through right now. And we need to do that. That's what a government should do. That's what we should do. And we should help them. I think uh, there probably isn't much quibble that we need a big, big number I, I think it's uh, unconscionable that people are arguing politically one way or the other uh, about uh, not giving that immediate aid and hopefully we'll get there, whether it's uh, two weeks or, or not, it should be done as soon as possible. We can afford to do that. Uh, and by the same token, uh, the biggest pushback I would say is, you know, everyone would come up with a program that says, yes, it's a great investment. We'll make a lot of money over the long term and then we'll have unlimited budget deficits, you know, as far as the eyes can see in every. Uh, and the only argument I would say is we already have this program. Uh, the payoffs are huge. Uh, we take six million kids already out of childhood poverty. This gives money to the people who are willing to work that need it the most. By definition, that's who we're choosing. So. Uh, I think this is the easiest one of, this is the easiest leap of all the programs that we could do. It already exists. 
We just have to expand it. It's doing well. We can do it in increments, but uh, the results are pretty phenomenal. And we're already incurring that $1 trillion a year in the cost of childhood poverty. And uh, so it's not a question of not spending. We're already spending that money. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The next uh, um, uh, devil's advocate pushback I give you is what about the free rider problem? I. I'm a company and I say, wait a minute, you know, now that you've expanded this, uh, this uh, uh, do the right thing program, I think that I could actually get workers uh, and the government can subsidize uh, me as a, as a company. I'm actually a less efficient company than other companies and I'm going to use government money to subsidize my costs. What about that problem? Sure. So the way the earned income tax credit works uh, is it scales. So in other words, if the company's only willing to pay you $8, just to keep it simple, uh, you would get $7 from the government and make $15. But if the company was willing to pay you $9, you would make $15.85. So you would, you know, if the company's willing to pay you more, you'll get more. And then the free market is not corroded because uh, people would go to the jobs that paid them more. So the more the company pays, the more you get, the more you net. So the 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 program scales. It's not that everyone would pay minimum wage and then you'd make between fifteen or twenty dollars. The 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 program scales over time. Speaking of the uh, the uh, problems that are contentious, I want to move to uh, the third thing that you talk about from a public policy perspective: uh, things that pay for themselves. Immigration. There's a big debate as to does immigration pay for itself? If it does. How do we do it in the right way? Are we doing it in the right way? What's your solution for the United States? And that is of that Thomas Paine common sense uh, kind of paradigm. Sure. Well, uh, it's both uh, taking it from a, you know, the view from Mars and also as a long-term investor. So we talked about education and of course that's teach a man to fish. You know, that's that's very effective. And then we talked about long term investing and people, you know, paying them enough to live. And in immigration, uh, there's one part of immigration that is so clear cut and I think it can help all the other parts. And we know immigration is controversial. Uh, so I, I picked a very easy argument. I said we're blowing it in our skilled immigration policy. According to the business roundtable, we're second to last. In, of all developed countries in welcoming skilled immigrants, the only country we're better at welcoming skilled immigrants uh, than is Japan. And Japan actively discourages immigration. In addition, you have to speak Japanese. You know, we speak English. We're the universal language of business and science. We have a huge advantage in immigration. Uh, people want to come here. And what's the big deal about skilled immigration? Well, uh, I argue that skilled immigrants are a natural resources. Uh, each one that we take in, skilled immigrant, we make between a half a million and a million dollars a year. That's what we collected taxes from them, minus what uh, government services the skilled immigrants receive from us. So for each one, the, the present value of what mm. they contribute is between a half a million and a million dollars. In addition, we get almost two jobs for people who are already here. Every skilled immigrant we take in creates two new jobs. For every person here, Bill Gates was quoted at Microsoft, for every skilled immigrant we take, we create four new jobs. So we get two new jobs, almost two new jobs for each skilled immigrant we take, and we get between a half a million and a million dollars for each one in current value. And why is that? I say that's a free gold mine. So what do we get from skilled immigrants? Uh, well, 51% of startups over a billion uh, were started, founded by an immigrant. Uh, skill, uh, immigrants are twice as likely to start uh, a business as natives. Uh, skilled immigrants are responsible for a quarter of productivity growth over the last 20 years in the United States. And immigrants or their children have founded 216 out of the, four, uh, out of the Fortune 500, which is incredible. And now, what about productivity growth uh, with immigration? 
Yeah, productivity growth, uh, they're responsibility for a quarter of productivity growth of the last 20 years. So, uh, you know, it's I, I view it as a free gold mine. And of course, there's questions on, you know, the Statue of Liberty says, you know, give me your tired, your poor. You know, what about refugees? What about people seeking a better life here? Of course, we built our country on that. And I didn't say anything about that. I'm just talking about skilled immigration. Uh, so what I suggest in the book is let's take the free money. Let's take the half a million to a million dollars and the two new jobs that we create for each one. Let's bring in one or two new skilled immigrants. For each one or two skilled immigrants we take in, we can bring eight or 10 unskilled immigrants in. We could do that. Or we could bring eight or 10 uh, kids who are already here out of childhood poverty with that money. And we could get in an argument about which is the better use of the money. Uh, allowing more skilled immigrants to come in, eight or 10, or taking eight or 10 kids out of uh, childhood poverty. And my argument would just be, uh, uh, we should probably do some of both, but let's just take the free money is my argument. And we have a huge advantage over countries like Canada and Australia. Their skilled immigrant policy is we'll take as many as want to come here, okay? Right. That's, the, that's the skilled immigrant policy they have. Uh, the government sets standards there of what kind of education you need, what kind of skills do you need, okay? Uh, now, just because you have a certain degree uh, doesn't mean that you are a perfect fit for a job in Canada or Australia. It doesn't mean that you're an ambitious person. We actually have an advantage over Australia and Canada who actually have smart, skilled immigration programs. Uh, the way our H-1B program works, which gives temporary ability to hire skilled immigrants, and of course, uh, we exceed our cap uh, by three times within the first five days of eligibility every year for skilled immigrants, uh, uh, you know, under H-1B. So we're not letting in enough. And by the way, the United States is the first choice of skilled immigrants from across the world. Uh, second choice is Germany. Four times more uh, people want to come to the United States than second choice Germany. So everyone wants to come here. Uh, we're an amazing melting pot. Uh uh, where, you know, I, I acknowledge all the problems that, that we have, uh, but it's even worse in Europe. Uh, we're the biggest melting pot. There's someone here for almost everyone. Uh, and I think, uh, so you can either say we're the least bad at it, or you can say that the, we're the most welcoming relative to other countries and the most skilled immigrants want to come here. Uh, so we have that huge advantage. And so the way I suggest we do this Okay. We are the H-1B program is an excellent program uh, in the sense that it's a one to one perfect match. Uh, the way it works is a, a company wants to hire you. So it's a perfect match. So if we took that and said, if you want to hire a skilled immigrant, if you're willing to pay them 60 to 70 thousand dollars a year and on top of that at a minimum and on top of that, pay a 20 percent uh, tax to the government for every skilled immigrant you take in, which will still be cheaper than the inefficiency of our uh, current H-1B program, which is in, takes, it's timely, it's inefficient, it's uncertain, uh, it's expensive. Uh, it would be cheaper to just pay a 20% tax on top of the 60 to 70,000. Of course, if you can hire a native, someone who's already here, uh, not pay the 20% tax, you'll do that. But if you need a skilled immigrant, we'll take you in and uh, pay the 20% tax. We can use that for job training. We can use that for a, a, a lot of good purposes. Uh, and then we'll have a perfect match. If, if a company's willing to pay you for that, then you're clearly skilled and we'll get in a lot of money. We'll have unlimited skilled immigrants that way. We'll create a lot of jobs. We'll create a lot of money. It's a win, 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 win for everyone. I think that's a, a very compelling outline. Let me uh, frame my question to you. Um, my, uh, he, here's the thing. Let's say that uh, we, I believe uh, the concept that, yes, uh, these immigrants create more jobs, the skilled immigrants, uh, uh, then they're giving much more than they're taking away, and that's very positive for the economy. And I also understand the parameters that we're not taking enough in, uh, as you had said, in, uh, in multiple different ways, we're second worst uh, uh, next to Japan. Uh, people really want to come to this country. We're, sec we're the best, even more so than Germany. I, I believe all of this is true. 
but I'm still concerned from a, a, a political perspective. And the numbers that you gave me, 65 to 70,000 and 20% aren't enough for me. The, here's my question. How, how far up in, can I get those numbers to be and for them to be successful, for this program to be successful? Going from 65 and 70 to say 100 or 20% to 35%. Do you think that the, that's the sort of thing that you could still get benefits from the program for? Well, I think the the higher you set the hurdle, the less benefit you'll get. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, but obviously you can tweak the percentage, you can tweak the uh, minimum salary that would qualify. But, uh, and, and obviously it matters where you are in the country. So you'd probably have to you know, uh, arrange it differently by where you are in the country. But I think it's a very simple program. It's very hard to get a job. And if I think the biggest key is if you could hire someone who's already here for that skill level, uh, you would do that rather than pay the 20% tax exactly. on top of that salary. So I think it solves itself. So there's no reason you would hire some, you know, a skilled immigrant from uh, abroad, if you could get someone here and not pay the 20% tax or whatever tax we come up with. So I think it, it solves itself. I don't even think we have to solve for the right answer here. Or what's the right salary, I think, or the right percentage. I think 20% is enough and the salary will will settle itself with that kind of program because you'll never want to do that. So uh, I don't think we have to worry about the kind of issues that you're bringing up. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay. Well, uh, fair enough. Uh, and, and, you know, I want to make a hard uh, shift here then to uh, a topic that's uh, near and dear to me. Uh, since you know we're, I talk a lot about finance, and that's uh, banking reform. That's another thing that you've taken on in terms of uh, common sense. So, uh, what what's the the reform that you think is most uh, needed, and that's the least uh, costly? Sure. Well, thanks for the question. You know, we know that we had to have a bank bailout in two thousand eight, and. Uh, you know, Dodd-Frank passed a lot of regulations to fix that problem. And I think things have gotten safer and there's more capital in the system. And uh, But there are also a lot more regulations. And so if you look at uh, some of the repercussions of all those regulations, uh, you can see that it's really hurt small banks. Uh, there are far fewer small banks uh, who can afford uh, all those regulations, even though they've tried to lessen them. There's still far fewer small banks. There's almost no new bank charters being applied for for small banks. We know that uh, corporate bank loans under a million dollars are down by 75% since 2008. We know that business formation is way down, you know, and, and obviously there's a role for small banks there. So small bank loans and, and, and small business uh, availability of loans, I believe has been hurt because of the lack of small banks. And of course, we're driving towards larger banks because they're the only ones who can afford all these regulations. So I said, what else can we do? Uh, and, and by the way, we haven't solved too big to fail. The Minneapolis Fed came out with a study saying, hey, there's still a two out of three chance. We'll have to have another ba bank bailout in the next century. So, you know, we've heard small banks. Uh, we've heard small business. We haven't uh, solved too big to fail. So. Uh, you know, I talk about in the book, I talk about how do you solve a problem like this? And and I, I start out with an example of uh, that uh, England used to ship prisoners to Australia back in the late 18th, uh, early 19th century. Uh, and on one of the first voyages, about 40 percent of the prisoners died on the way to Australia. And of course, that's outrageous. And there was a big uproar. And of course, you could have uh, solve it by more regulations with uh, more medical care, food, safety, more monitors on board, cleanliness rules, you know, doctors, you know, you could do, you could, you could make a lot of regulations on what they'd have to do to solve that. Another way to go about it is to say, uh, instead of paying uh, the ship captain for who gets on the boat in England, we could pay them for who gets off healthy uh, when they get in Australia and penalize you for anyone who doesn't make it. 
And so you set the incentives up right from the beginning. And what I suggest to cut to the chase uh, is one way to set the incentives up rather than more and more regulation so we don't have another uh, banking crisis is more capital in the system. So right now we still have less than 10% on average uh, capital. And uh, we've had new risk controls and risk parameters for the quality of assets and things of that. And, you know, once again, all kinds of different regulations where you can measure things different ways. But one way to solve it is to say instead of 10 percent or less uh, equity, we need 20 or 30 percent. Uh, and of course, if you, you can put on such onerous capital requirements for banks that no one wants to be a banker either. So it'll <laughs> have the same have the same. So no one wants to invest in a bank and no one wants to be a banker. And but so what I suggested is that we have a new type of preferred for that extra capital. So let's say you can add 20 percent in equity capital on top of the 10 percent we already have to get everyone to 30 percent. And why is that? It's because when a restaurant fails, no one cares. The economy doesn't skip a beat. When a, a large bank's about to fail, there's a they're so intertwined with the economy. There's a whole cascade effect that happens when that happens. And I want to make it when a bank fails, hey, equity holders lose money, just like a, a restaurant, but no one really cares. So if you have 30% equity and most of the losses or all of the losses are borne by equity holders, no one really cares. You pays your money, you takes your chances. But I suggest we raise that equity in a special way. We raise that equity by saying, there's now a new type of preferred that a bank can issue uh, where the dividends are tax deductible to the bank. It's, it's preferenced for the bank, but it's uh, the dividends are tax deductible and the dividends received by the holder of the preferred are uh, tax free. Okay, so it's a we're, we're supplementing the banks with this special type of preferred and we're doing it up front as opposed to being out there to bail them out uh, at the end of the game. Uh, where you know two out of three chance we have to bail them out again. We'll take that off the table. So that's a hidden supplement to the banks and we'll do it up front with this uh, preferred. I also suggest that uh, management options are tied to the preferred and the common as if they're stapled together so that they really care about that 30% and that the uh, board is responsible uh, their fiduciary duty is to the combined value of the common and the preferred if they're stapled together. So we set the incentives right. If you're currently a bank investor and like the leverage of a bank, you can go buy the common equity. If you want something, you know, which is just as leveraged as it ever was, you pays your money and you takes your chances. If you want to own some preferred, which is uh, preferred over the uh, common, uh, you can do that. Uh, and so we've now set up the incentive systems up front where all the losses are borne by equity holders and we're used to that every day of the week. Uh, yes, I think people would object to this because we're you know, subsidizing or supplementing banks, but we know that being the backstop to deposits, uh, you know, the, the backstop of last resort for deposits in the bank is supplementing banks. We do that because we don't want bank runs. Right. We don't, you know, we want the economy to work. So we're already doing that and this is, just a way to do something upfront that sets the incentives up right uh, from the start. And I think will really help, instead of more and more regulations, will really help small banks take on, the, have their equity holders take the risks rather than the government and, and free them up from uh, some of the regulations that have been added. The first thing that I'm thinking and other people might be thinking is, is that a normal corporation isn't leveraged 10 to 1 the way that J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America are. And so obviously you can get that that leverage and get that return on equity as you're talking about. But then there's a whole buffer of capital. My question, therefore, is what about that buffer of capital? Other forms of buffer that people have talked about. There's subordinated debt. Uh, there's also uh, contingent uh, uh, convertible debt that people have talked about, uh, co so-called COCOs. Why can't you use those as uh, potential uh, outcomes? Right. So uh, that's something that was implemented uh, after the 2008 crisis, where the government can immediately convert some of the subordinated debt of uh, these banks into equity. Uh, both Neil Kashkari uh, and uh, a bunch of Stanford professors, I, I quote, say that's never going to happen. And in Europe, it hasn't happened that you kick in that because once you kick in that subordinated debt and convert it into equity, uh, they would argue that a whole cascade effect would happen with all the other banks, meaning that would be start a panic in itself if you started converting those securities into equity. 
And you could believe that or believe that not. Uh, all I'm suggesting, if we do it in the form of preferred, which is equity already, that won't happen. You don't have to convert anything. You don't have to worry about that cascade effect. And so I think it's uh, it's equity to begin with, and, and you have that equity cushion to begin with. Now, we already say, uh, you know, JP Morgan has, let's say, a lot of uh, assets relative to its risk-weighted assets. So there's a whole different way of rating your assets. But what that says is that if you make a corporate loan now, and if you make a small business corporate loan, that's a risky asset already, and it eats away at your capital. So it discourages lending to small businesses right. and to riskier things. And so I think that's what I'm trying to get around. I'm trying to say, no, we want to encourage that kind of lending. And you know, if the if imprudent lending takes place and it and the people who get harmed are equity holders, that's the way the system should work. It should be the government bailing people out. Uh, I don't believe the subordinated debt converting to equity is a real thing that will happen in a crisis. I think once you start down that path, it's going to cause a disaster by doing that for a few large banks. And so I don't think that's a real solution. In Europe, a few have failed. They haven't tripped in those cocos. And, and so I don't think they will. Right. You know, for the larger banks. Yeah. And you probably know from uh, Real Vision that a lot of people, they come to us because they're concerned about the financial system. And, you know, it's not just about uh, banking reform and, and too big to fail and things like that. It's also, you know, personal finance. And you took that on in common sense. That was one of the that, that's the last topic that you had, which is uh, retirement savings. Can you talk to me a little bit about uh your greenfield idea as to how we can make uh, retirement uh, take that off the table as a, a huge source of, of worry? Sure. Well, as a long-term investor, once again, uh, as a country, we're blowing it. In other words, uh, I tried to give an example of the powers of compounding. I, I taught, I was asked to teach a group of ninth graders from Harlem. And the first thing I did with them uh, was I put on their notebook an example of compounding that went like this. If you start saving at age 19, $2,000 a year at 10% returns, uh, and you put in $2,000 a year for seven years till you're age 26, and then never put in another nickel, or you start at age 26 and put in 40 uh, contributions of $2,000 a year until you're age 65, uh, who has more money? The person who put in seven payments from 19 to 26 and never put in another dime, or someone who started at age 26 and put in 40 payments for 40 years. And it turned out uh, the people who started at age 19 and only put in seven payments earned more, about 930,000, uh, than the uh, person who started at age 26 just seven years later and put in 40 payments, which earns less than 900,000. So just sort of saying starting early is good. And that's the exact opposite of what we do. Of course, uh, we have Social Security. Right. If you're in 10 or $12 an hour, which is about 40% of hourly workers, uh, Social Security is nice, but it's $9,000 a year. And right. if that's all you're living on, that's not a lot, considering uh, nearly half of all working age families have zero retirement savings. Uh, the median family between age 32 and 61 have about $5,000 in retirement savings total, not 5,000 a year, 5,000 total. Uh, the average working age, low income, black, Hispanic, or not college graduate have no retirement savings at all. Right. And this is just very telling. Nine in 10 families in the top fifth of the income chain have retirement savings. Nine in 10 in the bottom fifth do not. So nine in 10 in the bottom just have Social Security. And the answer to this, of course, is taking advantage of compounding. But of course, we're not doing that at all. Uh, we don't have any personal savings. If you're not earning a lot of money, you don't have money to save. Right. Okay? Yeah, that's the problem. If, if, and when you're starting out, you don't have money to save, which takes, uh, you know, the time element out of it. So what can we do? Well, I talk about what Australia does is it everyone has personal savings accounts. It's called superannuation. And then the government has a supplemental plan if you haven't saved enough. And of course, uh, we're never going to convert Social Security. People love their Social Security. It's a good program. People get some money. But it's not enough, especially for those who need it the most. So what I suggest is the way Social Security works now is it's sort of what you, it's based on what you put in is what you get out. So since what you get out is capped, we also cap when you start start put, uh, stop putting in. So after $137,700 based on this year, uh, you're not taxed on so you're not taxed on Social Security anymore because you're not going to get any more out. 
So I don't want to raise taxes for this because everyone's going to be grabbing, you know, those tax dollars that not, won't necessarily go into retirement. It might go to, if you raise taxes, it could go anywhere. So what I suggested is uh, we keep taxing people above 137.7, but it's not really a tax. That money goes into a uh, special retirement account. But because these are higher earners, you don't get to keep it all. You get to put it in a tax advantage account, but maybe only get 80% of it. 20% comes off the top. And that goes into the accounts like the 401k accounts of uh, low earners, of uh, young people who can take advantage of compounding. And so we take it from the high earners and we put it into 401k accounts that can earn money, take advantage of compounding over time. And that's a lot of money at, at that level. And that's one way to solve it. And, uh, you know, it could be a win-win for everyone. But right now, my bottom line, really, in writing this chapter was, as a country, we're blowing it. Because if compounding is the answer to this question, no one's doing it. Right. Certainly no one who needs it. And that's the, the best, as a long-term investor, way of thinking about it. If you're looking at it from 40,000 feet, taking advantage of compounding, we're not doing it. And how can we get people who need it, low wage earners, uh, Young people, how can we get them saving early? Uh, we're not going to supersede. We're not going to get rid of Social Security. That's just realistic. We're not going to get rid of it. Uh, it's a very low return on your money there. Uh, it's not very generous for the lowest earners. Uh, it's not enough. Let's just say that. So we need to do something else. We're blowing it. What else can we do? Any iteration where people can save from themselves being subsidized by the high earners. Uh, I made a suggestion of how we can go about doing it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially to the degree that uh, uh, young people and people early on in their careers, uh, they don't have the opportunity to be able to save. They don't have the money to be able to save. Uh, the the question, of course, is always going to be, isn't uh, that redistribution? Because there's this whole concept that redistribution is bad that you're taking my money away. I earned it. You know, I let's say over 30 years, I'm a rich guy. You know, I'm I'm not even rich, let's say, because I live in the New York City area. I make uh, 150,000, and now that money is being. I get to only keep 80% of it uh, when I I put it into Social Security. You're going to give 20% to someone else. Right. So I I made that uh, tax advantage account, so it's still a net win for the high earner. Uh, they get to put that money. It's not a tax, and it's taken from you. You get to keep 80%. It gets to compound tax advantaged, and we can describe what the tax advantages might be that make it worthwhile. But obviously compounding that money uh, with a tax advantage would make up for that difference over time. Yeah, that, 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 I think that's a good point, and that makes a, a lot of difference there. So, I mean, great book. Uh, I'll, I'll put it up again, Common Sense, uh, very interesting ideas, uh, uh, definitely uh, a lot. I can see your long-term investment uh, chops. Uh, a part of that and, and very well thought through. So um, I'm really uh, excited to have had that conversation. I'm equally excited to talk to you a little bit now as well about your uh, investing. I, I kind of want to start it off by mentioning uh, that you, I, you mentioned it earlier, you're an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. What made you decide to, uh, to get involved with uh, teaching I mean, it does seem like it, it's giving back, which is, uh, you know, part of why you wrote this book. But maybe you can tell us you're you're an investor, but now you're also teaching about investment as well. Well, one of the reasons I write and teach, I, I write investment books and I uh, number one, that people were nice enough to share with me. And that's how I got involved reading Benjamin Graham and reading Warren Buffett and and learning from them. And they were willing to share their wisdom. So that's why. Uh, one thing I, I do is write, and another is I teach. Now, of course, I give a lecture first day of class each year, and I uh, add, one question I ask is, what's the social value of being a good investor? And I get all kinds of answers from my class, but I conclude, you know, the market would be okay without you. You know, they don't need you to set prices, and the market's pretty emotional, so it's not even clear in the short term whether you're really good at it, uh, but that really doesn't matter. The point is, there are probably higher and better uses for your times and talents. If you're that smart, uh, uh, there's a lot you can contribute to the world. Uh, allocating capital, of course, is helpful to some people, but it'll get done without you. So uh, what I tell them is I've had a great career. I've really enjoyed my time uh, being an investor. Uh, I think we do 
some good, but it's not the highest social value I can think of. Uh, once again, I've enjoyed every moment of it. So what I ask my students, and, and of course, teaching them to do something that don't have social values, one step removed from doing something with high social values, so that's even further afield from, from doing something. So what I ask of my students is, listen, if they're good at this, uh, we're generally overpaid for what we contribute, so that if you can take uh, some of what you earn and contribute in what any way you think will be helpful uh, to the betterment uh, of the world, the way you see it, uh, that's what I'm asking you to do. So I'm, I'm giving of my time and, and I hope when you're successful that you figure out the best way to give back uh, for, for this gift you know, of a career that I've enjoyed very much. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, sentiment and uh, I applaud you for that uh, 100%. Uh, you know, um, you, you, you mentioned Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett. And actually earlier on, I mentioned the fact that you were a prolific value investor. But the question is, what is value investment? I mean, from your perspective, if you had to uh, you know, do the elevator pitch for what kind of investment you do and why it matters in terms of uh, excess returns, uh, how, would you, how would you position that? Sure. So our definition of value investing is not low price book, low price sales investing. We're like a private equity firm valuing a business. And of course, that means cash flows. So, you know, this comes up in the pandemic a lot. You know, how do you deal with what's going on? And what what I'm generally doing is looking a couple of years out for normalized earnings and how much are those earnings going to grow? How much is that cash flow a few years out going to grow over time? And that's really what we're looking at. So the next year or two is just a small portion of that valuation. But no private equity firm is going to go buy a business because it's low price book, low price sales. They're actually looking at cash flows and uh, you know, what kind of moat there is and how much they're going to grow and how certain they are of those cash flows that they're going to get. And that's how they're evaluating a business. So if you define value investing as figuring out what a business is worth, that's what a stock is, an ownership share of a business, figuring out what a business is worth and paying less, that's my definition of value investing. And of course, that's not going to go out of favor over time. If you're good, I make a promise to my students first day of class, I promise them if they do good valuation work, the market will agree with them. I just never tell them when. Could be a few weeks, could be a few years. Uh, but if they do good valuation work, the market will agree with them because that's what stocks are. They're ownership shares of businesses. Things like momentum investing, you know, have uh, correlated with good returns in the past. Low price book, low price sales have traditionally correlated with good returns. Uh, but we're not looking at correlations of certain factors that may or may not have worked in the past. We're looking for causation. Causation has to do with valuation. Valuation is based on cash flows and how much they're going to grow over time and, and what is the uh, security of those cash flows. How, how positive are you that they're going to take place? How? It's interesting because uh, I remember I, 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 I went to Columbia also. Uh, and uh, and Warren Buffett was one of the reasons why. And I remember reading about his transformation from Geico, uh, you know, which in certain ways uh, it was emblematic of sort of the likes of Cap Cities, ABC, to uh, you know Coca Cola companies that arguably you know were higher in price, but he was he was buying them for a value, and so sort of uh, his, uh, he moved in terms of how he was thinking about uh, uh, value investment. And it makes me think now with uh, Warren Buffett invested in companies like Apple, uh, that there's this paradigm value versus growth. Uh, and, and in particular, when you think about the financials being the ultimate value companies, uh, how do you think about uh, the value versus growth paradigm in terms of what you just uh, pointed out? Because it's not necessarily that you're buying a low P.E. stock per se. You know, Ben Graham taught figure out what something's worth, pay a lot less, leave a large margin of safety. Uh, Warren Buffett made that little twist that made him one of the richest people in the world. He said, if I can buy a good business cheap, even better, because part of your margin of safety is you know, how well will that business stay in business over time? How will it grow assets? In other words, your margin of safety can increase as the value of the business goes up. So, you know, what you're suggesting is, you know, Buffett said value and growth are tied at the hip. Growth is a component of value. Uh, you know, Apple is uh, one of the greatest franchises uh, that we've ever seen. You know, it's sort of the entryway to the Internet. It's the uh, for for many, you know, hundreds of millions of people. So, uh, you know, it has a very valuable ecosystem as well. So it's a great, great business. And the same with Amazon, the same with Google, uh, same with Microsoft. Uh, so these are great, great businesses. And, you know, the way the market's been going, 
Uh, I don't think that's where the froth is. I think for, to a large extent, we own those businesses. We think they justify their values. Uh, but we did a, a look at companies over a billion dollars in market cap mm-hmm. and forget about 2020 uh, because, you know, COVID really messed up some of the earnings, particularly in the second quarter, now coming up to the third quarter. Uh, but so we'll look at 2019, which COVID hadn't started yet. And if we just look at the companies that lost money in 2019 that had a market cap over a billion, there were 261 of them. Uh, if you bought every single one of them at the beginning of this year, you'd be up 75% through the end of September. So if you bought every company that lost money, and so there's a lot of companies that people think rhyme, hundreds of companies people think rhyme with Google, Microsoft, and Amazon as good businesses, uh, and they can't possibly be. There will be some gems in there, but it's generally a bad idea to lose money. And I don't think there uh, those there are hundreds of Googles, Microsofts, and Amazons in the, those companies. So I think that's where the froth is. And I think if you're willing to buy growth at any price, uh, uh, which I think is what's happening across much of the market, that's where the froth is. It's not in the biggest names that everyone knows about. Those are actually great businesses with great franchises and great ecosystems. And I don't think they're unreasonably valued. You know, some of them may even be bargains for a value investor like Buffett or myself. Uh, we own large positions. Uh, but there's a lot of froth in the market. It's it's a market of stocks. It's not a stock market. You can't really look at an index, say, oh, it's overvalued. under. You could, but you'd have to pick them apart stock by stock. And that's really the way we look at the world. Right. Yeah. And uh, when you talk about it, I mean, my, the next question I was going to ask you before was about the current environment. What else do you have to say? Uh, l- let me just piggyback then off of what you were talking about in terms of the froth. I mean, uh, w- how would you characterize the, the this environment from your own perspective of what's the the most salient point in terms of how your go forward look and over what time frame are you thinking? Right. So, of course, we have to look past COVID and hopefully uh, most of this will be under control, if not fully recovered in the next six to nine months. At least that's what I'm hopeful for. But once again, as we talked about before, the value of a business, over 90 percent of it comes up what it's going to earn a couple of years from now and how much is that going to grow? So we're trying to look past that. Of course, you need a strong balance sheet to get there and a lot of other things to consider. So I'm really trying to take a long term perspective. So uh, I, I think uh, you've looked over some of the things I've written. One of the books I wrote was called The Big Secret. And I always say, you know, my joke is that it's still a big secret because no one bought that book. <laughs> uh, and since no one really is going to buy that book, I'll just tell you what the big secret now is. It's uh, having a long term horizon. Uh, very few people can have that. There's more data available right now. You know, I used to send out quarterly letters when I started in 1985 with my own firm. And now even the largest institutions need to hear results every week. And I don't know what they do with that data, but you really have to have a, there's someone who allocates to US equities or real estate or whatever, and they at most, even an endowment should have a, a, be a perpetuity as far as time horizon. But there's a guy at the endowment that allocates to US equities and maybe he has a three year horizon at most. That's that's what people consider a long term horizon. But of course, the long term is much longer than that. And so an individual investor can actually take a longer term look at things, look at value over a longer period of time and not worry about, well, am am I going to underperform in the short term? Yet there's so much data out there. People have so much data to check their stock price every 30 seconds on the Internet. Things are going the other way. Time horizons are shrinking. And that's the advantage of a long term investor. That's the advantage of a small investor. That's the advantage, hopefully, I tried to take in the book where, you know, hey, let's not look at this year. Let's look at this is an investment. Let's look at the long term repercussions of making this investment today. And and sort of that's what we've gotten away from because we have all this data and this ability to crunch numbers and all these fancy statistics that supposedly measure risk in the short term and things of that nature, which really don't do it the right way. And so trying to step back from, you know, the Thomas Paine view of even investing, like say, hey, let's start from the beginning. This is actually ownership of a stock. It, the Sharp and Sortino ratios don't have much to do with that. So. You know, uh, and uh, there are a few things that come together there. I was thinking about compounding, as you were saying that, in terms of, you know, thinking of it from a long term. And for me, it the most important aspect of that last uh, statement had to do with the fact that 
you know, you don't have to worry about getting fired as a uh, individual investor because, you know, you can think long term. Uh, you, don't, you don't have like uh, you don't have shareholders or, or rather uh, investors who are uh, in your fund, breathing down your neck, looking for this this quarter's earnings. Uh, and it, to me, it sort of harkens back, uh, you know, for my last question, I had already thought about this as being the last question. Um, uh, the book you had another book. Um, uh, you, you know, you already mentioned it, the big secret uh, for the, the small investor. Um, to me, the, this whole this whole uh, paradigm is about the difference between thinking about what a large investor does and uh, what a small investor does. And so, you know, the, the two parts of that uh, that book title, the big secret and small investor, they go hand in hand for me. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. You know, this whole move to indexing uh, is is probably the right move for most investors. But if you're good at valuing businesses, uh, the world is very tough for active investors, uh, active management, because uh, you're being judged on very short periods of time. And to beat the market, you have to do something different than the market. Your returns are going to zig and zag differently. And if people move in and out at all the wrong times after you've underperformed for it's it's a very tough environment for active management uh, between the move to indexing, which is the right move for most people if they don't know how to evaluate individual companies and or good managers. And it's tough for active management. It's great for stock pickers. So there's that uh, disparity there between active management is challenged. Active stock pickers, it's a great world for them. And yes. so that's what I'm excited about. And, you know, those who follow that kind of logic uh, should have a, a great opportunity going forward. Good. A very optimistic view. Overall, I mean, just an optimistic view, both on public policy and on investing. So, uh, Joel, I really appreciate your taking the time and uh, talking to us about your book, Common Sense, and also your, your investment uh, theses. Thanks so much, Ed. Pleasure. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com